the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before introducing our guest today, I do want to remind listeners that if you're enjoying the content, I am hoping to have about 47 additional patrons by the end of the year. And you can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. But this will be another of our Guattario Brothers uh, B-sides. It's Taylor Atkins from Theory Talk, translator of The Machine Unconscious, and Alfonso Williams at Theory Analysis on Twitter. We're discussing essentially uh, bits and pieces of Chapter 7 of The Machine Unconscious by Felix Guattari, but a few other things. Uh, memes, a little bit about Baudrillard, a little bit about um, Hegel and La Ruelle. So um, a pretty broad conversation, but I think it's uh, one that you'll enjoy. And so here it is. One of the things, and we talked about this uh, in the Refrain episode, um, I believe. One of the things, and I think you brought it up, Alfonso, it was like the phones having just uh, the camera and the video function and how, how the quality of that just keeps being refined and that everybody has a, everybody has a fucking device to capture in real time um, either, you know, shenanigans at Whole Foods with some lady, you know, doing the whole, I don't want to wear a mask shit, you know, that crap, or <laughs> up to like police brutality and, and things like that, that, um, you know, there's something, I think with Guattari, it's always this fine line because there's, in that there's something powerful in you know giving back to everyday people and a means to at least uh in different ways to confront and and record and register um that kind of systemic um you know violation of just rights civil rights of all kinds but on the other hand as as he would say the social media um can, can create that feedback loop of I like that endorphin rush of, 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 uh, getting likes and stuff like that. So, so as long as we're, uh, able to healthily, and that's the question, right? Healthily, like, um, take the good with the bad or take the, it's, it's really like this temptation thing almost, right? That mm-hmm. desire gets kind of caught into this negative feedback loop of just almost narcissistically like needing those likes. And, yeah. and, it, and if we realize that social media, shouldn't just be that kind of little uh what's it called dopamine feed if we can if we can temper that and a little a little a little bit of urban water or stoicism you know what i mean just <laughs> and I, I i fall into it too where i want yeah I, everybody wants their their posts to like pop off and be liked and stuff but it can't just be about that it, it and I've been fucking around with the memes as you've been seeing, but yeah. part of that's just yeah, feeding into... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, part of that's just feeding into... It's not... 
yeah, a tiny bit of its narcissism, but also I like want to make people fucking laugh, you know? Yeah, and, right. Yeah. And just there's something about that where it's it is a kind of also a sending out of good vibes to yeah you know, to people and just don't take things always so seriously, exactly. right? Because a lot of my means have been that kind of silliness and yeah, and I just you know if I can make you guys laugh, that's a good barometer of like yeah exactly it, it, whether or not even if it doesn't pop off, it's like hey if I've done that then then it was then it was worth it you know yeah I mean that's the fun of it I think I think uh, if you're trying like if you're I mean, like to some degree, it's all about clout, and in a way, like it can, like you can definitely fall into that trap. Yes. But I think that, like you said, if if you can just do like your little niche crew mm-hmm. of like of followers that like your stuff or like are yeah. in on the in on the joke, then right, it can definitely be fun. Like we just talked about in one of our like post episode recordings, it's kind of like shooting hoops. Like if you're out shooting, th- if you'd like to shoot threes, it's kind of the same or like uh, free throws. It's like that, just the like reaction of the net popping. Like yeah. the, that's kind of the same. I like just that. Like a different medium of that same kind of like skill, of hey, like coming up with the joke or whatever, the rea- getting the reaction. Have you, Alfonso, have you played with like the meme maker any? I, I, I know that I've seen you do some of that stuff, but you... Um, I only asked because I'm so new to it. I'm still like a noob and it, it was just real, real simple. It was real simple. I do all, I mean, I, if I wanted to get like refined, I, I could uh, use paint or Photoshop or whatever. And I think you mentioned that Coop, but, yeah. um, but for the most part, I've just been real lazy and it's just, it's the, I think it's called memetic. That's what I have right now. And I just do it all on my phone. And so like, yeah. You know, I, 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 cause I'm not too picky about it. It's, it's really right. just about the, the ease of, uh, yeah. of doing it. How uh, fast you, know, save, you can do it. Saving yeah. an image, bloop, bloop, bloop. And then, and then, you know, um, I know that you, you write a lot about the image and aesthetics and I mean, I know you're interested in McLuhan. Do you, do you have any like things to say about, about that from, from your perspective? Um, I've messed with memes a little bit over time. Um, yeah. I think the app that I have on my phone is the meme generator. Uh, gotcha. The one skill that I wish I did have, though, is I wish I had some some um, like some serious digital editing skills. So, Same. You know, like you, I've been learning those just from like doing the thumbnails for the podcast. Like my skill, like I keep on leveling up. Yeah, yeah. And all these different like little nuances, like figuring out how to do a drop shadow. On, okay. a, on 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 just an asset, like on one individual thing, um, and I bounce back and forth too between some of like a lot of the memes that I do for the like the episode thumbnails. Those I'm doing like I'm spending a, a lot of time in Photoshop, and then I have another. Uh, there's a website called Photo Mosh that has all these mm-hmm. effects too that I'll sometimes take. I'll take an image and then I'll run it through that just to see like what comes up because you kind of can like click and it'll automatically go through these kind of they're kind of like vaporwave effects okay which i could probably do in photoshop but it's, it's so much faster well yeah it's this way. and then okay. you can drill in there and do like if you do want to like get granular in terms of the editing you can do that and play with that so sometimes i'll do that and then it just depends like sometimes i'm just doing a quick and dirty sometimes i'll put effort into it and i'll like actually open up photoshop uh-huh. it just kind of depends on where I'm at, you know, do I have the, is the laptop there? Mm-hmm. I just, a lot of times I don't want to forget 
what I've got in my head because I'll have that idea. And then I'm like, Oh shit, I need to get this out rather than refine it. Do you ever uh, draw in addition to, or sketch before you, uh, that's no. probably weird in, in terms of memes, but I'll usually have an idea. Like I'll get the image idea in my head, the main, the main thing. And then I will search, like I'll find images that kind of go in that direction and then I compile it. Yeah, sure. But yeah, I haven't really done a whole lot of like customized. I'm not that great of an artist. So usually it's like customized text or something like that. And I mean, oftentimes I'm making a reference to something as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. Cause there's times like where I want to, you know, cut out somebody's head and put it on a, another figure, but you know, I just don't have, and I know like the magic, um, some, some art, yeah. some art program, you have, yeah, the magic wand tool that, you know, can do it very, very cleanly, but you know, I'm shitty at that too. So, <laughs> um, yeah, man, there's just, there's so much time I feel like I wasted that I could have spent, you know, really digging into Photoshop and all those, you know, similar type of, uh, of programs. Um, but I never got around to it. So I feel like I should be making up that time now. But all those I, skills are, are yeah. so useful, especially today, man, because we're so yep. image focused. Um, you know, we're, I mean, we've been in a, in a very image heavy world, but especially you know, now for the upcoming generation that's really getting a lot of their content from social media, especially Instagram. Um, you know, and this, man, I really, I really, really feel for the kids because a lot of them, you know, they're looking at the content and they, and they're assuming that it's real. Right. But, um, so real here in this, in this sense means, um, authenticity. So they think that the people that they're following are really living the lives that they're portraying, you know, 24 seven or, Maybe if it's the case that they don't believe it, you know, the disbelief is there, but it's not enough disbelief to totally, you know, cut off the um, the uncanniness. Yeah. So they still have that desire to, you know, this life is still possible. So I'm going to still follow you because I do find it uh, entertaining. And to some degree, I may be able to either now or maybe sometime in the future be able to mimic that. Um, but images are, are definitely uh, uh, a modus operandi today. <laughs> the dirt for annihilation. Oh my God. What's Have you posted one today? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Maybe he's just living off of fucking royalties and shit, right? Like he did. Oh a, he financed a movie the other, I believe. I forget I, what I movie that. I can see that. That's, that's pretty, it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, Alfonso, about the, I'll have to put some, some, a little bit of time into Photoshop just to, just to fuck around. I mean, and I'm such a noob on that too, that even the little bit of time I spend on it, you know, the, my, our, our potential is very large because we, we're just, you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're yeah. coming at it without any real presuppositions. And, uh, and so it's, I mean, that's how I felt with the mimetic thing where I just made like 30 little memes in, in a day and kind of, I, I've kind of, I was like, okay, I got, I, I like indulged that little drive and got, got a little bit of experience and just had a little fun. And, and now I can like step back from it. Don't want to beat a dead horse, right? You know, you don't want to, 
uh, you don't want to force creativity and just make something just to make something. But I, I took, I don't know, I, I found several temp templates that I liked and it just, and what, what, what is your mind just kind of like insert into it and you know, you just kind of throwing things against the wall and it's not really, it's not, it's, it's only like quasi serious and it's, and it's always meant to have some, some kind of laugh. Like the one I really liked was the, uh, the the little meme of Deleuze holding up Guattari to catch the the ball, the Lacan. I mean, that was just that was just stupid because it's 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 on the one hand, it's a little dig at Deleuze, and that's part partly why it's like funny, but it's it's not really meant to be serious because I yeah. don't think I don't think Guattari would would characterize it that way that he like you know became Deleuze's teacher in terms of psychoanalysis because Deleuze they met at the the seminars. You know, Deleuze was 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 participating or at least listening um, in Lacan seminars. Yeah. That's, a, and that's where they met. So, you know, um, I guess it, it, I think why it's funny to me is, um, I love Deleuze and, and I just think in Deleuze scholarship, at least in English, the Anglo scholarship or American really. Um, and there's just billions of books on Deleuze, but a lot of times, you know, it's, Guattari is always this afterthought. Right. Not yeah. always, not always, but, but, but it, but it seems like the majority of the time For they sure. don't know, they don't know what to do with Guattari and it. Right. And so Deleuze is already a fucking continent. You know what I mean? So it's, exactly. it's hard to, you it's know, like Trump, it, he, yeah. Trump, he like sucks so much air out of the mm -hmm. room in terms of the attention. Yeah. So, you know, the, it's never going to be Guattari and Deleuze. Yeah. It's just, but still, I mean, that's why we're, I think that's the important yeah. work of, the Guattario brothers. Yep. Hopefully is to like, we talked about the other day is to continue to do. And, uh, Alphonse, I'm sure you'll be interested in just like, I want to continue this series and look at other books. And we yeah. talked about like maybe looking at three ecologies next, I believe was the one. Yep. We three ecologies the other day. Is, is good. Um, but yeah, I like to, I want to do, I will continue we could do like a continuing series, the four of us getting together and doing these. And then like, I like that idea of for every book, I'll like switch up the, the meme. So yeah. instead of super Guattario brothers, it'll be like super Guattario cart or like super <laughs> paper, paper Guattario, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. This yeah, is man, one of my favorites, this 1968 and heartbreak though. Like <laughs> that's funny. That's good. It's sad, but it's good. What, what were you saying, uh, Alfonso? Were you I was gonna say, uh, taking it? You know, I think one of the uh, one of the challenges with with somebody like Rosari, who um, is really an independent thinker and really thinks outside the box. Um, I mean, true to what he was trying to write, he really put himself out there, you know, in his ideas and tried yep. to, and as, as dense as his language is, um, he really tried to go out there in the world to, you know, experiment, see what worked and see what didn't work. So yep. this, this necessarily sort of meant that he wasn't going to be working from a manual. Yeah. And he wasn't going to be, you know, even though he was sort of quasi at different um, seminars and uh, you know places where academics were, he was around them, but he wasn't of them yeah. to the to the point where he 
needed their needed the same methodology or to utilize the same channels to get the ends that he was looking for. It wouldn't have been enough to just you know publish a book and a paper you know every year um, because the end would have been you know for what I'm just perpetuating um, you know something that's not really going anywhere. So I'm so instead um, I'm going to be out there with people who are you know in these problems trying to you know, really make them work um, as best as I can. If I, if I can't make it work, then I'm going to woodshed some more, come up with some more ideas, and try and and try and work it out. So and that's definitely what he seems to be doing with the with his diagrams. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's hard to it's hard to box in somebody like that. So him and Deleuze definitely make a good pair because they're coming from you know opposite, not necessarily opposite, complementary um, aspects of of the thought ocean, and they found a way to you know construct a dialogue and make it work. And just within you know the two three books um, that people really know, you know. 40, 50 years later, people are still digging into them, um, finding things that, um, finding new applications and things they didn't quite understand and um, ideas that have changed with the times. So they've, so in reading them now, you know, they've found a way to readjust ideas and, and that sort of thing. So but that's, that's thought. So your thought is not static. And you have to, you have to take into account uh, time. So, so yeah, yeah. But Walter uh, is is a can't box me. I I totally agree with that, and and I, you know, it's I, I think that's just what, to piggyback off what Coop was saying. That's that's why there's there's still, there's still a lot of, um, fruitfulness in, in trying to approach his, his solo work, uh, because, you know, because it, it does, it'll, it'll help us to kind of be more informed and it'll inflect our readings of, uh, um, of anti-Oedipus and a thousand plateaus and their other works together. So <laughs> what does that say? Is no substitute for the real thing? That's funny. There's, yeah. There's no substitute for the real thing. Nice. I like it. This is like what I want the uh, Lacan comic book. I would want like that kind of font, but it would be like, so that would be up at the top at Lacan. That would, that could be like the cover of an issue. Yeah. The text would be up here. Um, That would be awesome. (laughs) I would love to do, it would be, yeah, it would be so much fun to do. Cause that's like, okay, so this is the image. This is a King mob from, um, the Invisibles, which is a Grant Morrison book from the 1990s, very much uh, an anarchist, more or less kind of inspired text. Yeah, I know Grant Morrison from. Um, yeah, I know he's a, a real good, very good comic book writer. And the other one I have, um, oh man, what was that event in DC? That Crisis on had, Infinite Earths? Yes. Yes, I have that. And since I bought it, I haven't dug into it. But you know, knowing his name and what I had heard about him and, and, and that particular event, what was going on in that event, 
you know, I had to, because it was, there was an omnibus, which yeah. is the one that's in the room that was on uh, on sale in the bookstore at the time. So I fucking went ahead and bought it. Um, but yeah, I know he has a reputation for, for good writing and, and complex writing. So, oh man, I, right, I got to check that out. He said Invisibles. <laughs> yes. Because so, uh, one kind of cool thing, and I did an episode with uh, Lewis Call, who kind of like looks into comics and he's kind of a post-structuralist anarchist type. That's kind of the milieu he works in. And uh, so he had written an article about the Invisibles and particularly that about like the kind of, because there are, I think in, even in the first trade paperback collection volume, there are, there's references to like Kropotkin and a few others that are scattered throughout just the initial book. But one of the kind of interesting things he does is, um, and there may even be a picture. I feel like I had a picture of, there's him like, they defeat the antagonist by holding this gun. And it may even be in the damn article. Let me see if I can find, uh, it's like a screenshot. Ah, yeah. So this is actually where I cropped the, uh, the there's no, no substitute for the real thing text from this. So they take this drug and they defeat the, the drug is called, I think the K drug or key drug. And what it does is it like disentangles signifiers from the real or something like that. And so by shooting the antagonist with this gun that says like the pop or bang, like that's how the the antagonist winds up getting defeated by a signifier. So right. it has, you know, obvious resonances with something like they live, but it, yeah. in a different vector. Vectoring. Right. Yeah, I think you maybe in one of our very first recordings you you may have brought this up, this notion of the sort of the signifier being the actuality that could be wielded as the weapon in this one specific uh, universe. Yeah, I, I believe I remember you saying something like this. Um, so yeah, for sure. I think uh, like I mean it's kind of tongue in cheek, like this notion of like sigil magic or or chaos magic of like coming up with this one phraseology that will undermine the kind of entire symbolic order and kind of collapse things down. And then you can sort of defeat the defeat capitalism because you're on a different, you know what I mean? Taking supposedly taking capitalism on, on the plane of the real is kind of a loser's errand or a fool's errand. Right. So you have to engage in different levels in order to defeat capitalism rather than engaging it on its own turf. Right. But, you know, like you said, the resonance, is it redundancy, resonances of redundancy, or did I, do I have that backwards? Yeah, backwards. Redundancies of re resonance, yeah. So I think your response was that they're very low, like the the power or the, the of the redundancy at that level is not quite powerful enough to make to make change. Yeah, and, and, and it also seems like sometimes I read it as uh, the, redund the redundancies of resonance, you know, on this lower level, it works on like the linguistic signifying aspect of, of assemblages. And so can, can prepare or prep or maybe sometimes initiate transformations, but they aren't the forces of transformation themselves and they can't explain it. That's on the, that would be on the level of the uh, 
redundancies of interaction. And of course they tie that in to the diagrammatic and the machinic, you know, so to speak on the, on the further end of the a signifying and the a textual and uh, a grammatical too. Um, so I like that notion of, um, but these are all different levels of schizoanalysis, right? The, that, that first, the generative level is, is on, it works on redundancies of resonance. And to a certain extent, you can't just ignore those. You do have to, right. you know, you do have to arrange those in such a way that they can allow for new unconscious formations and new assemblages and whatnot. So to, to that extent, I mean, I think Watchery, even though we, we talk against a kind of strictly Fordian interpretative approach, um, it's, it's obviously the talking cure doesn't get thrown out as though that were no longer one of the tools. It's just no longer the main or best tool in every situation. It, it yeah. loses that, that right. it loses that uh, hierarchical uh, practical, uh, you know, emplacement and it gets, it gets uh, thrown into the toolbox with everything else and um, including going on a stroll, right? With the, with the schizo. <laughs> See, I think that uh, the, this was my idea for the, basically the power that Lacan would have in the comic book is to, he does, he would do the talking, talking cure, mm -hmm. resolve whatever issue the antagonist has that is kind of like creating whatever, whatever like plot or what have you that they're trying to accomplish. Lacan's power would be like getting them to make the connection, like to collapse that down. And mm. that would sort of be a superpower. And I was thinking in the realm of like, maybe preacher would be like a good model. I was about to say, cause it's how like the, your, your yeah. yeah. Oh, that's what, that's what you talked about. You talked about preacher. Go on. Yeah. Just cause I think that, I mean, but there's so much you could do as well. Like you can, you could in, in have, you know, actual legitimate historical figures a philosophy like even Deleuze and Guattari you know could potentially be like a, a villain for the the comic book for them to face off of, over like anti-Oedipus or something like you know what I mean yeah yep like there's so much ground or like going back in time and fucking with Freud or you know what I mean there's so many different little or like having him battle like Heidegger or like Heidegger you know what I mean there's little there's so many plot lines you could come up with just with like existing shit, but also in incorporating, you know, off, off canon, let's say just fictional shit, fictional scenarios. Oh, yeah. But I think that'd be really fun to do and have like an actual like comic book issue in your head that Lacan is the title. That would be hilarious. Well, yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, um, you would be able to not just work on the level of, image and text but incorporate diagrams like from the most basic to like the most mad scientist squattery and and that's that's really i mean as i think you said this last time we talked that you know guattari does inherit and take seriously uh this trend this um this teaching tool as well of of lacan's which is which is taking the diagram seriously and, and yeah and treating it seriously and trying to find a kind of, you know, whether or not it's based on the math theme or whatever, I mean, cause that's Lacan's own, you know, way of approaching things, but it, but it at least shows a, a generalized 
analogical way of thinking that helps to, um, I do think it helps to try to sound out hollow or, uh, you know, the hollow thinking that certain types of Freudian discourse would, would get into. I mean, in this return to Freud, Lacan is trying to rigorously suss out a, um, an approach through language that would have to sort of correlate with these different diagrams. Yeah. And, and without, without doing that, then, then the analyst is kind of either re resorting to metaphor or metonymy in a way that's blatantly false. If it doesn't sort of, if it can't reflect itself back in to the diagram. So you have to have that resonance. And if you yeah. don't, then you're, then you're kind of a charlatan. Yeah. Let me ask you, Taylor, what you think as far as, so are, is the Deleuze-Gortarian Deleuze notion of desire necessarily in conflict with Lacan's as positing it as lack specifically? Like, is there a necessary conflict between the way that they view desire I, or define it? I'll, I'll, I'll toss this to Alfonso in just a second because I don't know if I have a definitive answer. We, we did, I mean, we did discuss some of this last time you and I talked and Deleuze does want to make it into, you know, he wants to put kind of uh, Lacan and Hegel on one side and Badu will align himself in this way too, as well as Plato and this whole lineage of history of philosophy and thought looking at desires lack. I, you know, I mean, for Deleuze, it's this weird thing where lack is a kind of distortion of that which it's like a symptom of productivity, but then it, but then it kind of, it, in a representative way, it undergoes this displacement. I mean, this is the same logic as like Oedipus. So I guess that's where the lack thing for them comes in is that it's that negation uh, put to the forefront is this sort of false image or this mirror image or, or a kind of after effect, an epiphenomenal effect of, of production, uh, so to speak. Of desiring right? production? Yeah. Okay. Because I, I don't know, this, my instincts were kind of around um, this notion that like, okay, so I guess general understanding that Deleuze and Guattari have this view of, of desire as a positive function that is creative and can be revolutionary. And at least on that level, I don't think that the lack posited by Lacan is necessarily in conflict, in conflict with it because that lack can, could, yes, it could be, you can produce positive revolution or change or what have you from from that vantage point right and oh, i think no, with anti-oedipus like that's the kind of knee-jerk is to say oh this okay this is like a full-on attack of lacanian psychoanalysis but it's not exactly that right well i know alfonso has been working with <laughs> a lot of a lot of lacan lately i i, I would want to know I mean, do you do you agree more or less with this, or that there's that they're not so in conflict, or do you see do you see another uh, do you see an incongruity at least something like that? To me personally, I don't necessarily see a conflict. This is like one of those. So to sort of go back to the conflicts for a quick second, I don't know if you guys remember the Marvel What Ifs. Yes. But you know, in thinking of a Lacan comic. Like, number one for me would be what if Lacan and Deleuze, you know, after um, 
that particular meeting if they had kept up um, that relationship and really bridged and tried to try to make something of it. Um, so, I mean, the sense that I get when Lacan talks about desire um, and how it's it's sort of something that gets you into trouble a little bit, you know, because it draws you into situations and scenarios that you don't you can't necessarily foresee, you know, because of the unconscious. And then when you add uh, the lack factor in there and, you know, needing the other to sort of fill out the rest of your discourse, um, I mean, that definitely has a place. So you're forming a, a connectivity with another individual and individuals. But when we slide to Deleuze and Guattari, and then we take we take it to another plane where now all of these um, part objects and components are now within a more global system that has a lot of agency within itself. So you have um, different formations that can uh, occur but then also built in within those formations. There's sort of a built-in, uh, built-in, um, um, maybe self-destructive process, but it's not not necessarily a negative self-destructive process. It's just an ongoing uh, transformation that happens as a part of the, uh, as a part of how the organism evolves. So, I mean, not forgetting about the subject in here and not having them get lost uh, within you know their own agency and autonomy which which they do have you know the the, the, the subject still has choices right they still have to make um so i mean in my mind there's definitely a lot of productivity that can happen here and actually when when i was reading this particular diagram that you have up now in my mind it's sort of read as a little bit negative just from the labels of of, of, yeah. of the, some of the different points like yeah, the it's one impotent. dimensional yeah, yeah exactly. the one dimensional signifier um impotent signification and this is you know forbidden yeah the process the of real yeah. partial object process of enunciation yeah subjective and then all of this is en encompassing you know the subjective black holes uh, right. which I'm still trying to um, wrap my head around the that part of uh, a thousand plateaus, right? But um, yeah, just what what the diagram seems to be enunciating to me is the limitations of psychoanalysis as it has been formed um, by Freud and Lacan, and what Watari is trying to do is say this is what happens here but we can go further there are different diagrammatics and other formations that we can um, use within schizoanalysis to um, attack some of these same problems and come up with different solutions and different formations that will take us to new places give us new insights um, and not have things become stale and old and have us uh, just 
repeating our same strikes. Yeah, I, I, I said something uh, to just to stick on this lack question. I mean, I, I said this to Coop um, a few days ago when we were talking, and I noticed that Guattari, at least by this point, um, you don't see it much in anti-Oedipus. They don't really – he doesn't really like to talk in terms of anxiety. And honestly, this this diagram here – could be very well like the subjective black holes uh, as as one as like that could stand in for you know the the anxious subject kind of caught in this triangular uh, mm-hmm. impotence or I, you're you're either impotent or you're or you're or it's already taboo that you have to tra- you or you have to transgress yeah. right and then the impossible is undergirding it all so it's so you're kind of trapped in. And that's why you're right. I see the I see it as kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, diagramming of of a certain probably simplistic Lacanian approach, right? And, yeah. And yeah. and and so it's, but it is all. But it but further, it's not just a it. Now it is scaffolded in Lacanian terms, but to a certain extent, Guattari's critique is the semiological. Um, triangulization that goes on in a certain form of linguistics or structuralism in general, right? So in that yeah. sense, I see it as taking, it's like two birds, one stone, where it's, it's clothing everything in a Lacanian structuralism, but the, but the target is, is said to be a certain linguistic structuralism that, you know, held ascribe to someone like Roland Barthes with, um, you know, with this, uh, with this reduction of everything to a kind of flat linguistic plane, that I think that, that, that for Guattari, that's that has to be part of the target too. Is um, mm. is, is like uh, confronting that. Yeah, because it's interesting that he's that he specifically uses semiology as yep. opposed to semiotics. Yes, and so the the difference. That I've come to understand you know, between the two is that semiology um, tends to focus more on the literary uh, linguistic aspects, whereas semiotics uh, focuses more on the global um, uh, application of signs and yep. objects and the different significations and, and breakdowns. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's the it's the logos in in semiology that I think Guattari wants to bracket or or wants to say it's not the end all be all. As you were saying, you know, there semiotics is concerned with science systems that are uh, that are beyond merely linguistic science systems, and so it's that that's where uh, you know, as you know, he he'll turn to purse for some of his his terminology. And, and, um, I have, I know that Janosko's, I mean, Janosko's really obviously the, the key Quattri scholar, but I, I believe, um, I believe my friend Rocky, Rocco Gangle, he wrote a book, I think it's called like Diagramming Eminence, something like that. I have to look it up. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Sorry, Rocco. Um, but it's, it, it does take, um, People like Laurel and Guattari and exposit and, and some others, and, and, and he exposits them probably Deleuze too uh, through uh, purse and sort of um, 
you know, his, his theory of signs. Um, and I, I think that more work like that needs to be done because Peirce is very much like Watery, even if he has a certain linguistic kind of following. And, and uh, I mean, there's a billion linguistic schools, first of all. And second of all, though, he has, he's kind of the mad scientist character, very much like Watery to a certain extent, maybe not as exaggerated, but in his own vein, he's, he is kind of a weird polymath and he's full, he's yeah. at once philosopher and ling, ling, uh, uh, linguist and you know semiotician etc like he's he's just kind of all over the place and that can be you know that kind of transdisciplinarity is threatening to the the isolation the insularity and the self-importance of you know more traditionally monolithic disciplines you know I mean the, yes we have you know interdisciplinary you know, fields and that's, that's all been promoted, but you still, I mean, philosophy is still like philosophy programs, at least how it's done in the States. As you guys know, it, it's, it, it's still dominantly kind of self ensconced in its own archive and its own history. And, and, um, you know, we gotta, we need people like Purse and Guattari who, and McLuhan and, and these others who are radically trying to get these different, mediums these different um discourses to talk and i think watery sees that i mean he defines in this chapter the uh, the analysis of the machine conscious he says is the same as a machinic ecology of assemblages which is kind of interesting that already he's thinking of schizoanalysis as involved in what he'll call the three ecologies right the mental the social the environmental um, and that you can't, you can only like, there's no, there's only a formal distinction between the three. Like there's no real distinctions between them or something like this, right? That they're all involved in the same, uh, in one of the same ecology, which I assume he, he could still call a machinic ecology. Um, you know, he might, he might drop that phrasing by three ecologies, but it would still be appropriate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, all these all these parts are interesting. So uh, yeah, I have some of uh, I think one or both of Purse's uh collected works. And yeah, I didn't I, I also have his biography too. Uh, you, you, ha you have that handbook. That handbook is good. I have a copy of that. The semiotic handbook, I think is what it's oh, called. Yeah. Yes. Or a handbook of semiotics. That's that's a really nice little volume and it's got some person there, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's been very very helpful and you know because there's even little little bits where um they touch on some of the contemporary um areas that semiotics was delved into like the like the biology the biological some of the more non-traditional um, areas so seeing seeing that in writing and having those names has been uh, extremely helpful in um seeing how far seeing how far things go and how far the territory uh, really stretches. Um, but yeah, Purse's, you know, at least from what I've read so far, you know, I mean, he was definitely, like you said, all over the place. And, you know, even yeah. his works are not, they're not in one place. It's like a lot of papers that had to be yes. collected together. He's um, super prolific and most yeah, of that man. stuff isn't published, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it just, you know, it really takes... You know, when you when you are transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary, um, 
and have no formal outlet, you know, like Watery and uh, yep. first when you have nobody sort of, you know, behind you to sort of take up what you've done um, and formalize it, um, at least in, in terms of having all the material in one place to be to be referenced. Uh, it, it, it can make it difficult for other people to see how much value there really is in, in, in one place. You know, but as we as we know now, you know, there is a, a ton of value. Um, they were very broad-minded thinkers and um, very good at making applications that sometimes folks within the academic uh, ecosphere don't necessarily see because of specialization. So, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, you need you need both. I mean, there are things that the academic um, environment is very good for. But then on the other side of that, you know, you do need people who, man, really just go hard left and yep. do things that folks wouldn't necessarily expect. So they, they definitely work together. And that's why the Deleuze-Watari partnership was, was so great. Mm-hmm. All right, Coop, do you have any uh, part of the chapter you want to hone in on? I know it's kind of, as I, I, Alfonso, I told Coop, you know, one of the reasons why this chapter is so weird is it does seem like it's, if, if we take seriously, it's supposed to be an annex. And then we, we don't see like a, any one thought that's going through to the end like the other chapters. Even if the other chapters were kind of all over the place, it seemed like he was investigating certain themes, etc. Here it does seem kind of like a, uh, conglomeration of notes for either for terminological stuff or conceptual stuff and so we can kind of dive in anywhere at any point and maybe try to even if we have to focus on one sentence we could try to get something out of it yeah uh, so well, I'm, I'm gonna let you try to just so we can get a little bit of the chapter because it's it's, it's it, we can't exhaust any one chapter anyway so it's it's good to just do that yeah, I don't want to step on the toes of too much of our content for the actual, whenever we actually dive into this with DC present. But um, I think some of these opening questions that I had were even to just back up from like a 30,000 foot view, like what's the context? Uh-huh. What's the context for what Quatari is talking about? Maybe even in the book itself, like just to even back up for a moment and kind of like right. understand, okay, what where are we like are we speaking of is this a nexus uh, a confluence of semiotics psychoanalytics and philosophy well, or yeah. like what what's our starting point what's the context for that where the book is coming in like at what angle what what register yeah. maybe would be a way to understand that question better so i would this say is 1979 yeah. right that's right yeah yeah. It probably comes out less than a year before A Thousand Plateaus. I mean, he's, it seems like there is, it's not like material was directly reused too often. It, it happens like every now and then, but very rarely. But, uh, but yeah, he's already, I, I assume they'd already had, they may have been in revision stage of A Thousand Plateaus by this point, by this point of this book appearing. So, um, it ha- he he says it's basically kind of like a workbook for or a handbook a kind of a a little uh, ancillary guide slash 
you know, exposition slash, as you say, workbook, right? You know, draw on it and try to like, you know, think of where ATP fits in at different points. And so on that level, Coop, that's kind of what I would say at 30,000 feet is that it needs to be read in conjunction with, with the, with the thousand plateaus, basically arguably the most famous work, um, at least for us. But the, but for this chapter specifically, I see it as a bridge, a break between the first six chapters that's trying to set up the, the experiment or the conceptual toolbox. And then the second part reading Proust, cause he's going to, uh, very quickly just start, using some of these, this terminology that, that, you know, like refrains and faciality, et cetera, he's going to already start just assuming we have that, uh, at least a little bit of familiarity with that. Yeah. So that we can go on him with this, on this journey, um, through Bruce, you know, work and, and, but he does say at the very start or very top, he's like, you know, I'm going to be throwing out all this shit. So if anything looks weird, come, revisit this chapter and, and it's ironic because it, it is in that sense if we only use it as a reference then we can you know be like oh good dodge the bullet because it's just it's it's a lot it's a lot to take in um but if it can be a reference point or just to have some of those little landmarks for us so that we can follow him on this path uh through proust at, at this weird angle he's he's trying to he's taking us off the beaten path right so yeah, so much of my notes from this chapter were, were really just sort of reiterating what he was saying and trying to put put the breakdowns into a more uh, condensed form, even yeah. if only like literally on the page, so that I could take a step back and and just recomprehend what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I had so, a I struggled mightily with the chapter and thought that understanding the diagrammatics might be the key to unlocking the remainder. But so I'm not even sure, like I have questions, but I don't even know if they're necessary. They're just more like general questions that aren't necessarily all engaged within chapter seven. So like the idea of whenever we're recording this, this episode, are we, like, are we an assemblage? Um, are we an assemblage of enunciation as a group, or is that like yeah, maintained we, as a, as an individual subject, or like, what does that relationship look like? And then, like, we're literally hooking into this machine of yep. the internet, which is facilitating this kind of uh, rhizomatic function where we're all connecting into the Guattari machine as this assemblage, and we're all. Sp- speaking or enunciating um i don't know yeah i mean there's all these different flows on all these different levels that are that are kind of conjugating their their waves right i mean desire is part of it right because like this is the productive element of desire is this discussion is drive it's uh, driving us to make these connections and hook into the machine and make enunciations and and we so, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, like, we, we, we enjoy each other's presence. We want to try to produce something. The jouissance. That, yeah, I mean, that's, we want to articulate something that, that resonates not just with, uh, with, with each of us, right? Because I'm, I'm already kind of thinking about, you know, what you guys are, are uh, some of the stuff you're interested in. Like, that inflects even my way of, yeah. of trying to 
approach what's interesting to me or oh, not. Sure. And so like, I feel like if, if we just, as, as our little crowd, our little, we're already a crowd, whatever, you know, as our little collective assemblage of enunciation, if we can make these, you know, flows of, of language, this logaria sort of resonate in each other's minds and produce and stimulate thought or cause us to have an insight or, or just inflex like a little, a little thought particle in a, in that Kleinemann and, and make something fall out. Um, then I, then I, I feel that's just a bare minimum criterion for it being worthy of offering others to come in and listen and, yeah. and say, Hey, what, what, what assemblages of yours are hooking up with, you know, with, with these flows of language and thoughts and et cetera. And just our, as I said, our, the basic camaraderie, we all approach each other with the, the knowledge that each of us has something unique to add and that we can always riff off each other. And there's something beautiful about that. So yes, we are definitely an assemblage and it's, and it's still underway, right? It's still, in the, it's not like always already right. The abstract, the abstract sides there. And, and we, you know, participate with each other in this way in which we try to, you know, we're, we're sort of connecting our widgets and our little Legos and we're building yeah. out this, this, this kind of territory of, of, of thinking. And it's, we all get to share in that. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and wonderful. So that's my way of being gracious to you guys, but uh, I want to, I would love to kick it off to either one of you. I mean, I just think it's interesting to look at like, okay, so we have these machinic processes going on from one register and then like we literally, like there are, there's a literal machinic element to how we're able to conduct the conversation. So like on two levels, there's a different form of a machinic process going on. And I don't know how integrated that like literal machinic digital aspect is into a what Deleuze and Gu or what Guattari is is getting at or discussing or looking at or you know what I mean mm. from that from like what vantage point is that discussion coming from yeah I mean I would just say really quickly you know it's it's impossible for us to do what we're doing without language so which know, is this, technology alt I mean is, yeah, exactly. is language a technology yeah so yeah language is a is a technological sort of acquisition and it's a it's a part of the biological phylum too right because we we know we had we already had to have had all sorts of different evolutionary consequences to even not only begin to manipulate tools but but symbolically manipulate language so on that yeah. level and this is where i think guattari and Laurel are very like very simpatico where it's it's you know if we're going to describe the real or the one which is indifferent to his descriptions, we have to do it based on certain rules. Uh, otherwise, we're sort of reproducing the the sufficiency of philosophy that that we fall into. But but language is still a required occasional material, and, and I think that that's what I think Watry doesn't want to say. Well, semiology is stupid. It's just he wants to say, hey, ever since there have always been a multiplicity of abstract machines that even make the linguistic machine that technological phylum possible. And if we just assume that everything's language on a certain gross level, or at least in the last instance, language has a certain power, um, then, or a certain hierarchical, like above all the other technological abstract machinisms, et cetera, 
then we're, we're sort of privileging one machine and one uh, concerted sort of channel of flows at the right. expense of the others, and that's where you get sort of a tree form, yeah. right? That that at the top would be language, precisely because we have to use it to do this. You would say, oh well, duh, language is is the king. But I think for Guattari, right. we could also, you can just imagine on a certain hyper intelligent level, uh, maybe not a Borg mind, but some sort of, you know, uh, fantasy sci-fi intelligence where you know the three of us aren't sort of humans on earth, but we're just like at lightning, at, at, at light speed, you know, sending out diagrams. That's our like thought particles that we're like inflecting off each other. And then language would be shown much more precisely to be at us at a, at a, at a, at the minimum level to almost being forgotten itself, which you wouldn't do. You, you don't want to do the opposite either. You don't want to just say, because there would be sort of this minimum of, of, of a certain cons- consistency of, of language to, to broaden ever more the, the possibilities of the diagrammatic or the memetic, right? Because we could just be like sending off memes. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting, you know? that's right. an interesting <laughs> point there, I think. But uh, to go back, I think, so that's, that's the critique of structural linguistics or structuralism broadly. Mm-hmm. Two that you were talking about earlier to back up, but then I think yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, what's the difference between diagrammatics and a meme? Mm. Is an interesting approach, or like, yeah, is there a difference really? Um, I don't it's, know. It's interesting because we could think of some of Guattari's diagrams even just in this chapter. Like, form is different, but function is. I mean, also function yep. is to communicate something. Yeah. No matter you're encapsulating like, a thought. And, and a lot of these diagrams, I think, could be like templates, like meme templates, uh, yeah. could be manipulated and filled in and, and rehandled, reworked. It's yeah. just, I do think that the meme at this stage, or at least the meme as we think of the visual meme on social media, has mm-hmm. such, gives, gives a certain, um, there's a certain immediacy of the aesthetic encounter yeah. of, of an image right. that, 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 that can form as a background or a foreground however you want to play it. I think that the diagram, at least Guattari, how he usually does it, it's devoid of color. It's black and yeah. white. There's a certain bare, there's a certain bare bones aspect where the image is not given. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have, I won't say like, it's not mess. It's just not as maybe present or it's not as, as foregrounded. I, I'm Alfonso, yeah. I'll, I'll let you jump in. I, I feel like, I feel like you can help me out here. You know, I was thinking um, Deleuze and Guattari's term of the use of the term cybernetics. I can't remember uh-huh. where, um, where I'm, I'm thinking of this reference, but is it that the original use of the term cybernetics was not necessarily in the complex technological association that we make today? That it, okay. that it comes from a more... Um, I guess an assemblage reference, but not of um, formal technology that that we that we usually typically think of. So I'm not sure if that reference is is, is correct or not. But, well, I, um, yeah, yeah. Go on. Sorry. Um. Hmm. Yeah, that's the only thought I have. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you're good. I I do think that 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 bringing it back to cybernetics is very interesting because. 
you know, if you, if you look back at like Shannon and Weaver and the first ones to really sort of set a certain groundwork for both cybernetics and information theory, it is, it, a lot of it's about the rarity or the periodicity more appropriately, the periodicity of codes. And generally it's language or you can imagine like, uh, my dad always taught me Shannon Weaver stuff based on like receiving a telegram in real time. Mm, and, okay. and, and so there's going to be the letter E and in, insofar in the, in the English language is more or less the most uh, periodic uh, letter. There's a certain lack of information in that and in, in seeing an E pop up versus seeing a Q or a Z or an X there's something, there's more information in the rarer letters. And that's how Scrabble kind of plays out, right? You know, there, there are less of those letters, but they're worth more, right? So, you know, J's and X's and Y's and Z's and especially Q's because you need a, you almost always need a U afterwards to make it function. And then usually a third, a second vowel. So like there's something about, you know, um, the rarity of Q, um, not to get into Star Trek or, you know, the or, or conspiracy theories, but, but yeah, so, so with Shannon Weaver and they, they demonstrated this mathematically. Um, and that was something that was very useful for dad, not only, you know, cause he started as a mathematician and then worked for IBM and got his computer science PhD. So information theory for computer science, especially at that age when PCs were really cutting edge, um, that notion of information theory has a certain play in one yeah. realm of cybernetics. The other being uh, Wiener's side, Norbert Wiener, who was also very important for uh, computer science too. And his notion, he, I mean, he, I believe he coins the term itself, cybernetics, right? With the, okay. the, the, he's the, it's the, the Kubernetes is the helmsman, right? So the, who, uh, so, cybernetic is thinking in terms of it's it thinks information in that sense no longer based on quantity like with Shannon and Weaver in this mathematical side but more on quality there's a certain quality to information that is the real uh that's that's more important than quantity and in fact the rarity of the letter is not has nothing to do with the quantity itself that's just kind of a a symptom of the very quality of QX, whatever. Yeah. And Simon Don tries to say, well, look, both of these are important, but what's more important than quantity, what's more important than quality of information is intensity of information. And that's what Simon mm -hmm. Don really tries when he thinks of information as always having to do with potentials, with metastability, et cetera. And I think the Liz and Guattari are, are very on this and very, uh, are very on the same wavelength as Simon Don here, because I think that for Guattari too, his main point with trying to privilege semiotics and the a signifying the atextual is that when we look, we'll get to look when the narrator kind of starts to spin in the same subjective black hole as Swan did in this in this quest to become a great artist. Um, it's Von Tuyo's little phrase, this semiotic fragment that first he can't integrate. He's not equal to the event at first, but later on becomes equal to the event and thereby is it, 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 
it has the most metastable consequences for his machinic assemblages, for his abstract machines too, and how they function. So it's that semiotic particle of the little phrase that um, that ha that 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 shows that its intensity of information was much much higher than any other uh, it, all the other elements on the semiological. The, those first two levels that that there's a diagrammatic and machinic intensity of information in the little phrase that unlocks a certain becoming artist for the narrator and that's how the story has a happy ending right <laughs> okay okay yeah so we're seeing that you know it's not it's not enough to just become fixated on a single point or you know just the subject you need to take you need to take into account, you know, its negation or, or that it not is, um, which also, in, in a McCool sense, would be the environment. You know, you don't, you're not just going to focus on the content, you're going to focus on the effects of the content. So the medium, um, the medium is the message. Yep, that's right. And that's why I think McLuhan's perfect here because that that understanding of message versus medium um, is it, it rethinks a certain basic hylomorphism we've inherited from platonic and Aristotelian thought and and notions of stable equilibrium right that you know it's not enough one cannot think of what's the it's called the sunalon which is the unity of the form and matter one cannot think of a the unity of a form and a matter without that intervening interactive side of information, which is always potential energy, which is always, which is, which always requires metastable systems and which always requires charges from the pre-individual milieu or the environment, right? As, as you said, uh, without that you have, without that you just have an abstraction, right? Um, yeah. without those conditions, you know, you don't, you can't think how a brick becomes this brick from the mold by just considering the clay and the and the walls of the the mold, right? That's not enough. Um, you know, the form of the matter can't interact without already understanding information as a process of individuation. Yeah. So I guess to bring it to bring it back to our group, you know, we're we're already working on multi multi level, so it's not just not just us as individuals, not just the technology that we're using, uh, not just the language, but the, the points in between, or I guess the part objects that, where they would connect to, to bring out certain potentials, certain uh, affordances of, of opportunities um, for us to be able to make certain things happen. So, uh, I guess the machinic the machinic element of what Watanabe is trying to uh, highlight is that um, you know there is there's more potential there than meets the eye at mm -hmm. any given point in time. That we're not if as long so long as we move outside of our fixation points, the the things that we want to. Um, Try and fix and affix into a single place and a single location that so that we know for sure, you know what they are and that um, for comfortability. Uh, so long as we 
relax that and really try and take in the whole scene. Uh, we can start to uh, increase our own potential yep. and see where we're faulting ourselves and not giving ourselves enough credit um, and see new opportunities that we that wouldn't have, have even been possible had we kept our fixations in, in place um, on those those old objects, those old psycho psychoanalytic uh, um, uh, points of pronunciation. So go out the box, find other tools in the box that might suit the, the task even more than the tool that we were using. There's other there's other there's other possibilities. Yeah, and I would just say, I kind of, not to beat a dead horse, but one of the things that really I enjoy about this is uh, that, you know, we're, 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 we're continuing to develop a, a certain friendship and an intensity of friendship where we're um, not only respectful of each other's thoughts, but we, we, we are challenged to sort of... Uh, to, to think beyond what we alone, you know, in sort of isolation uh, would, wouldn't be able to do. So there's a certain potential there too, where, you know, we're, we're always sort of having these unconscious effects on one another uh, that, that lead to all these fruitful becomings, right? So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of, um, it's, it's, an, it's an important aspect that, that might not always get like acknowledged but that's um and that's where the enjoyment stuff that cooper was talking about yeah earlier yeah that's i mean part of it is i mean we i believe we do enjoy this not just the search but the but the sort of the riffing and the, the and the sort of playing yeah the whole process exactly. it's 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 the the correct meaning of two heads is better than one. <laughs> as, because as we know, you know, that is not always the case. Ah. Because typically people's uh, conventional understanding is that if you get two people together, then there is more than likely uh, a possibility that <clears throat> certain things can be brought out. But that's not always the case. The quality, yep. the intensity yep. uh, matters. So, in this particular case, uh, between the four of us, um, because we're all coming from different uh, different domains, it works a certain way, which allows for certain expressions to be um, enunciated. So, uh, so yeah, so there's 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 a good way to do it, and there's not so good ways to do it. So you can't necessarily make the assumption um, that the fact of more is always productive. So, yeah, definitely for sure. Oh, I think it's interesting to look at it in the sense of like the, maybe the historical linear progression of, of even just thinkers and like reactions and interactions between thinkers that gets us, gets the three of us to this point today where we are and I'm kind of interested in like is what are the is that the machine is that a machinic process um, is that what sort of Watari is getting at at least uh, in a sense 
just trying to understand like what the machinic process is because like through Lacan, right. The, the subject is constituted or the lack is constituted of the subject. So the subject is sort of this is an illusion sort of subjectivity is an illusion reflecting like we're a mirror reflecting the other is sort of my interpretation of what Lacan's getting at. So who are we, who are we really like whenever we're having these discussions about Guattari or Lacan or whomever, if there's, if there's not a subject or if the subject is lack, then I don't know. I think that has interesting appeals or uh, not appeals, but effects or I don't know. Phenomenon maybe is fascinating to me. Yeah, that's an interesting note. I was going to say, um, so the Machine of Conscience was published in 79 and Lacan would pass away in 1981. Right. So, you know, uh, um, the late, these late stages were where he was really focusing heavy on the topological stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, sort of getting to the juncture point of the subject Basically, you know, from the perspective I have right now is the subject being a, a multiple. So getting to the point where Deleuze and, and Guattari, you know, almost, you know, start, start their, uh, start their journey. So, um, like yeah. That. Yeah, so I think it would have been, I don't know, if, I mean, I don't know if Lacan would have even wanted to pick up the machine of unconscious. And so Taylor, you said the uh, Thousand Plateaus was published, uh, you said 80. a year later? 80. In 80, so I mean, it. I, we would have to know like, I wonder what the month, this book came out in 79 and the month that came, uh, ATP came out in 80. I wonder if like, cause hell, this could have come out in December, a Thousand Plateaus in January, you know, or it could be the yeah. other way around, it, or it could be more or less within that range of um it would seem like i my i've always guessed that it came out no more than half a year earlier but that's just okay. a guess that's just a guess it's not a i don't have any facts to base that uh on okay. yeah and, I, and also also during this time just just real quick um yeah you know like school was going through a a, a heavy dissolution so he was dissolving the school that he was that he was in right but for, for various reasons um so there was a lot of turmoil and um you know there were interfactional groups happening so i mean i know part of what lacan is is dealing with in his work is dealing with um, analysis training analysts and trying to trying to find a communicable solution that is as direct as possible, but coaching. And that was not what was happening at a later period of his life. So, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so in, you know, moving towards Guattari and his discussion of groups and really elaborating on the potential of groups, um, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, what kind of, maybe what did Lacan not want to see in Watery and Deleuze's work that could have potentially, I don't know, maybe provided some insight as to why yeah. 
the psychoanalytic psychoanalytic schools were not functioning the way that he he desired them to. So that's a, that's an interesting uh, historical nodal point. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, between these three figures, that always you know, leaves me in question. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, with with uh, I think with the what I like that you said that you know Lacan gets to this point where the subject is multiple, and it reminds me of they say in Antiedipus, um, desire doesn't have a fixed subject unless there's repression. It's only with repression that you have a fixed subject. And I think that that's part of the you know, goal in, in describing global persons and, you know, in going to flows, et cetera, in going to um, subjectivity as sort of a, a, a sweeping of a circle rather than any corpuscular entity of thinking or whatnot. Um, that by, that's precisely why Oedipus is the target because Oedipus is that fixed subject of repression. It's just the Western mode of, of universalizing this transcendental illusion <coughs> that we're all which has its own contingencies yeah, yeah right um and you know and then and then they don't even stop there right with i mean what it gets real interesting is chapter three where they basically say you know edipalization is part and parcel with colonialization right and so it's colonialism that exemplifies sort of the externalization of the war machine and, and of the imperial mindset of a certain sovereign conception of the subject. Uh, and, and it's that justification of, of a fascizing um, mode of, of international politics and, yeah. Yeah. and the consequences that follow from that. So it's, there's something too that's insidious. Both it's insidious reciprocally, right? Because Oedipus becomes more insidious insofar as it exemplifies its representative of a certain international imperialism with all of its atrocities. But on the other hand, insofar as imperialism is infected with this Oedipal mode, it too goes down this fascistic suicidal line of flight. You see this in Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now, which is kind of a retelling of that story. And, and just the Oedipal, um, you know, subtext or just, it's not even really, it's, it's the context too, but that Oedipal drive that, that, that both sort of takes Marlowe down a certain suicidal line of flight, but is able to potentially come back from the grave by the sacrifice of Kurtz, the sacrifice of the father, whatever. However, I mean, if we can get, really simplistic about it, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I think, I think that yeah. that part of, uh, I think that that part of Deleuze and Guattari, um, doesn't always get talked about. I'm not saying it's ignored, but that, um, that identification of Oedipus and colonial and the colonial mode, uh, it needs to be taken, uh, needs to always be taken seriously. And, and we could see it more, um, I, I think that's why you, you still see that in this work with this critique of, of, of capitalism needing certain faces to conform to, you know, certain codes and modes and, and thereby um, sort of bastardizing the simplistic 
uh, buying a vocality of, of the signifier, etc. So there's something about capitalism and its means of, um, again, it's a kind of exploiting a transcendental illusion, just to use like Laura Wells' phrasing. Uh, and, and it's that transcendental illusion that gives the leverage for capitalism to sort of, it's one of the cogs that allows it to function, which is this, um, which is what Laura Wells will call it, an exploitation of man or an exploitation of man's essence. This, this notion that, that man can be defined in, by these transcendent entities like power, sex, language, etc., yeah. and divide it up all the better to be conquered. Right. And so it's, I think that's Larwell and Guattari again, I see the revolutionary machine and the analytic machine are like one and the same, just <laughs> different regimes. And, and, and this, I'm bringing this all back around to both your question, Coop and Alfonso, what you said about Lacan and, and the dissolution of the schools is there is always something revolutionary about Lacan at the same time as you can't deny that there were, reactionary strains For too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could say that maybe about everything or yes, you, like Laura Wells says it about Nietzsche that you can't oh, yeah. just, you can't just have a revolutionary reading of Nietzsche to the exclusion of the I fascists. I mean, hell, Deleuze himself. Yeah, and Deleuze too. Yeah, no, no doubt. So it's that, I think with Lacan, you know, he famously said, and I'm paraphrasing in 68, like, you know, they, they, I guess the students, but also all the protesters, they, they want new masters and they shall have them. Yeah. Something, something like that. Right. And, right. and now that obviously there's, there's a kernel of truth in that. And, 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 and that, and, and it also is a, a pithy way of Hegelianizing yes. the power relations and thinking through the, that kind of um, base, I'll say base dialectic, um, yeah. master slave, <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, which like master slave yeah. is such a minuscule portion of the phenomenology that, it I is. think Kojev focused on, and that's why yeah. Lacan focuses so much on that for a time. Yeah, and I think that he believed, tries to correct that version of, that humanistic, the humanist version that Kojev brings to uh, to that reading of Hegel, but it, but it was very influential. I mean, it was super influential for all kinds of thinkers, including Lacan. We know oh, yeah. that he went to those lectures and seminars, and, and but with Deleuze, it, it, because... People, it was really delving more into the uh, the, the science of logic. Um, you get a different type of Hegel that doesn't go through that mode. And you're right that the master-slave dialect is just a few pages. It's important because it, it exemplifies the moment of recognition and how that works. But I yeah. think that someone like Rousseau, um, when he's writing about the 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 origin of inequality. He has, I think he does it in a more interesting way and really takes it seriously. I'm not saying he gets it more right than Hegel or than not, just that, or whatever, but that, you know, this moment of recognition when consciousness comes on the scene that we can, we, we kind of hierarchize each other based on va values, whatever. And, and for Deleuze Guattari, for Nietzsche, this is why uh, culture is, uh, cruelty is the movement of culture across bodies, right? It's planning, mm. it's marking, markings first, yeah. right? We have to, we don't Inscribe. have exchange until, until we have, right, marking, inscription, desires, planning its flags and bodies, until we have a certain territoriality, right? It's that, 
yeah. that, that marking provides that first surface of inscription, as you said, and it's based on that. I think that that's why, again, I think that, you know, to, like their critique of Sartre and, and, and his notion that scarcity is, is primary. So it would be lack that would be primary. And for Deleuze and Guattari, this kind of turns it on its head. It needs to be put back on its feet. The marking is first. Um, and you can see this, I mean, and, 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 you know, even though Levi-Strauss is like associated with a certain kind of brute uh, structuralism at the same time with his, as he's continuing to think the logic of, of the gift, you know, which he gets from Mouse, um, he's, he's giving Deleuze and Guattari some ammunition. I mean, they do turn to Levi-Strauss. That's, that's the anthropology chapter, though, right? Chapter 3 of Antiochus. So they do turn to Levi-Strauss for showing how gifts are primary antidate or antecedent to this logic of exchange. And we, Interesting. we, don't, if we don't take that seriously, then we're kind of overly simplifying. We're, you know, we're using transcendent categories to think the dynamicity of, of flows and assemblages, yada, yada, whatever conceptual uh, yeah, tool, yeah, yeah. toolbox that they'll try to bring in. That's so, that's interesting because I think uh, symbolic death and exchange mm-hmm. was like Baudrillard's attempt to do his own anti-Oedipus. That's so cool. Because that's what fo- a huge focus is. Uh, so mouse is huge focus, Bataille as well, but gifts, potlatch, etc. And then even there's the, I think the last chapter is on poetics. So I feel like definitely uh, it's almost, I'm almost certain at this point that Baudrillard was like trying to do his own anti-Oedipus style political economy, merge, merging semiotics, psychoanaly- uh, psychoanalysis, anthropology, and philosophy. Yeah, he was sort of, because he was hanging out with uh, Henri Lefebvre and uh, yeah. mm-hmm, yep. those guys. And, yeah, and, and I think Lefebvre, Lefebvre, Bourdieu, and... Um, Bart were his Bart were his oh, Bart. Okay. Dissert, that was his dissertation panel. That's cool. Yeah. Which I think is pretty pretty it's pretty metal. strong. It's pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, it's right. a pretty strong group. Um yeah. I mean, <laughs> Can you imagine? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like any one of them alone is enough, but like all three together. But you know what? Uh was also a, a German scholar and in his works. You would never, you would never know that because it never comes up at all. Why do you think that is? Do you think he just, it just, he he moved on from that, or it's kind of like Nietzsche moving on from philology, but but also always kind of weaving it in in interesting places. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I I don't know. Maybe it was just you know, uh, it served a functional purpose right. while he was, you know. Um, you know, working his way through, through life, but uh, I don't know. Either way, it got him to some to some interesting places too. Yeah. Because I think his historically, from his background, he didn't come from um, a family of scholarship. I think his there was some agriculture. He came from agricultural roots. That's believe. interesting. That's interesting. So, but yeah, so. Yeah, it's a, an interesting mix of guys, but but yeah, that book, uh, Symbolic Death and Exchange, is very, uh, for him, 
a, a dense book because it's probably, I think that's considered what his last um, academic style book where he really sort of lays everything out uh, clearly. So before you get to the more uh, polemical works like uh, Seduction and Simulacra Simulation, um, you start to get more to the, the weird, the weird language uh, stuff. But that's but but I I do reference that book a lot. It's a very very nice book and you know it's it's good. See, I think it's better to read that than even simulate simulacra and simulation because yeah, he discusses the theory there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, whereas I think simulacra and simulation is very I don't know. It's it's a collection of essays more so than like a coherent yeah statement really and some yeah. of them are not i mean even you mentioned earlier actually like post not post apocalyptic but apocalypse now i think there's a chapter discussing the movie and its sort of relation to the idea of simulacra and simulation specifically as this was the war the the real vietnam war wasn't the real vietnam war this movie apocalypse now was was the real experience that people had of the film of the of the conflict. Right, because that's what people were encountering through through media and you know, they weren't actually there. They just yeah. you know, they or, just know the media content. Yeah. Even like what's the uh who's the guy the Texan uh you can still find his lectures on YouTube. Mm. I'm forgetting his name. I'm not sure I'm blanking out. <laughs> I know the University of, I think Austin. Uh, the University, I guess it's just University of Texas Press. I'm trying to remember. Uh, hey. Rick Roderick is who it is. Okay. So Roderick um, talks even about the later book was the Gulf War did not take place. I think, and so I think he can't remember. If it's a anecdote that Baudrillard is sharing or Roderick is discussing, but it's, I think maybe he spoke to someone who had actually been over overseas in Iraq or what have you during the conflict. And they they didn't understand what was happening, obviously, because they're, you know, they're like on the boots on the ground, right? So they don't have the context to understand what was going on from a broader sense until they come home and see the footage that was on CNN or, you know, whatever mass media outlets. Yeah, I mean, that definitely speaks to a, a type of, divided experience so you know bring it back to different assemblages that see in this case assemblages that are in the war experience that are having the war experience and then uh, uh, domesticized assemblages so the people at home that are watching the news through the media um, trying to you know at, at, at what level or what levels do you do you bring bridge these experiences to to make a uh, uh, an enunciation that that makes sense and is true and intelligible to both parties? Um, because if the media is going to be involved as a medium, then there's a certain type of biasing that is going to occur um, at different points uh, of the levels of enunciation. So it's like, how do you, how do you correct that? Either as somebody um, in the, having the war experience, or as 
um, a citizen, you know, back home, watching those TV. So I wonder, I wonder what kind of, what kind of diagram, you know, <laughs> would have been, yeah, um, developed to, to sort of approach that particular problem. That's a good question. Yeah. That's a, I mean, at one at one level, you know, it's, it's a it's a this problem of ideology, but then it's also a problem of disinformation, misinformation, and the absence of information for for the soldier, because you know, in one, they're facing a um, a chain of command which they can't, you know, they're not supposed to disrupt in order to function properly. So, you know, they're in that sort of situation. Um, and then you have the, uh, the higher ups in the military who are sort of running things and, you know, feeding things to the media. Um, so they have a little bit more of a global, um, global perspective, but they're not, they're not direct per se. They're not totally in the media, but they're not totally in the war. And then you have, um, you know, your, your constituents, they're just sort of, you know, they know people, so they have an sort of abstract relation to the soldiers and whatnot. But this is still filtered by the media who are um, telling them different things at different points. So in this com in this complex ecosystem um, or complex ecology of enunciations, you know, how do you how do you manage yourself as a subject who could argue, you know, is arguably a multiple subject. Um, you know, these, it's a, it's a, it's a complex, it's a complex thing that you, that maybe with schizoanalysis, you can, you can approach maybe up to a point, but you can't, you can't formalize, maybe. Right. You know, you can, you can keep working things out. So there's always material and there's always content for you to, um, to work through, but you'll never get to a final solution. You'll never get to a, a final point where you can say, okay, this is how we do this. This is how we bridge such and such. You know, you'll just always be reformulating yourself and your, your approaches to, to sort of work what needs to be worked in the moment. I think so. I like that. I think I like that because it, it, it would encourage the schizoanalyst to be uh, flexible and to be adaptable. Yeah. And yeah. If, if that, I mean, if that's, if that's just one of the many or even one of the few consequences or benefits of, of, of a framework like schizoanalysis, it is to not to allow or not to promote a kind of, what do you, a, a, like a, a status quo approach to yeah. each patient or each group, yeah. even each, even at each moment or each session, you know, not to uh, promote a certain either static or inflexible means of approach because then it's, it's almost like the analyst can say, Oh, well, and sometimes this might, there might be valid and DC would say the same thing, but, um, but instead of allowing the analyst to say, I'm only going to work with or prioritize working with this kind of, you know, uh, pathology, 
you know, if they if they get into that niche, then then yeah, nothing is is forcing them to, in a certain sense, too. Though I mean that that promote that kind of just approach would, and I know transference is involved, but there always has to be some sort of empathy. Um, yeah. With just with another individual, and 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 I know that so much of the the worry is that that em- empathetic connection will you know, be noise in the channel and will be transfers and counter transfers. But for Guattari, that's, yeah. that's what he will call a transferential machine. It, it, it happens. It's going to happen. No yeah. matter, no matter if the, no matter if the transference is like tried to be hidden or not. In fact, there's a way of almost repressing um, the very fact that there is transfers and counter transference by like trying to get rid of that, any empathic, connection whatsoever or even the possibility of it so if we're going to if, if the goal is actually to help people and to try to give them certain um you know certain optional freedom certain uh maneuverability in dealing with day-to-day life and uh and, and certain options for uh making their machines function together in assemblage you know, I do think there has to be a certain openness, a certain adaptability. I mean, you could come with, and all there, you're always going to come with your refrains, your kind of like pickup lines or whatever. But it's like you know, analyst lines. Like you're always going to have certain yeah. tools that you might rely on. But I think for Guattari, he's like, look, we really have to say that there is no one universalizable, generalizable schizoanalysis for all situations. We really have to be able to be light on our feet. And um, and find new ways of even talking about how we approach the practice of not just everyday life and analytic life, but but desire, revolution, friendship. All of these things are wound up in in ecology uh, that yeah. you know, and 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 we have to be sensitive to that, lest we um, lest we rest on our laurels, or lest we you know start to slip in these workarounds and shortcuts that may seem profitable in the short term, but could have these long unintended long lasting effects. And, yeah. and yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's my take as a lay person about what analysts would do. You know, I mean, I can put myself in that imaginary space. Uh, obviously DC would have uh, his own practical experience to, to draw on here. And so um, I think we could start to like wind down if you guys are feeling it. Uh, we've had a good two hours. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Any last thoughts, Coop? Mm, I, just like the last bit you were discussing, I think, and I don't know if this was necessarily even the register you were getting to, but it's, this is one thing where I like – I feel like Deleuze and Guattari have more appeal is just the the ability, the open the openness in their framework to allow for difference and to integrate it versus like the universalizing force of Hegel and the dialectic, which I think is that which I think is kind of closes itself off to difference and contingency, but maybe I'm being unfair with that well, assessment. It- a certain heavy-handed and a certain like pedantic and scholarly academic way of approaching Hegel um, 
Sure. I, I do think that that's part of the same thing with Lacan is that his usage of Hegel and Heidegger and these other philosophers has revolutionary and uh, reactionary poles. Right. And, 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 and so we have to navigate that and we can't just put them in a contradiction or oppose them. Right. We have to take it as a, I don't want to say as a whole, but we have to take it as, as a part of, you know, a, uh, a parallelogram of forces that yeah. animate, animate these thinkers. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see Lacan's uses of, of Hegel or even Plato against himself. Right. I'd said last time Deleuze saying Plato is the first anti-Plato. Right. So there's, <laughs> you know, there, there are, we have to, we have to see those and be, and be nuanced. Otherwise we sort of fall into a kind of, uh, either a romanticization or heroification of like someone like Nietzsche who does that to the philosopher. And we, we say that he's just the, the rebel in person or, you know, on the alt-right side where you, you ignore so much of what he says uh, against anti-Semites, for example, and, and recuperate a kind of curated, you know, fascistic Nietzsche. You know, we, obviously those are the extremes, but everything in between for any thinker we read has those moments where we might put on sort of rose tinted glasses and, and, and either project onto them or interpret them in, in, in a way that's that Gadamer would call sort of a horizon of prejudice. And so we had to be vigilant about that and, um, and realize that there's no, there is no perfect Deleuze or obviously no perfect like Watery or perfect Hegel. And that's why you could have left and right Hegelians that, you know, really, um, it's important to, to be sensitive. And I try to do this sometimes without going crazy. Like I'll, I'll like jump on like, like Breitbart on, on, on the internet and like read the comment <laughs> section. Cause I'm like, what? It's almost like a, almost like a, like looking at extraterrestrial life for like <laughs> scientific purposes. Um, and, and just getting a taste of the, of a, uh, of what's the vector, right? Of you know this new story and how is it spun and how is it not only being fed through the Breitbart machine, just as an example, but like what are the the most you know prominent little commenter people doing? And uh, you know, but it's it's good to if you just like repress that and say it doesn't have any validity, whatever it, you're it's kind of like ignoring history, right? You're, you're yeah. doomed to, yeah. you're just going to get fucked in the ass <laughs> in a bad way, you know? Uh, I mean, yeah. um, so, so yeah, I, I think at, the, at his best, Deleuze was trying to do that. Even with Hegel, he's never as vicious as it might seem. And with Lacan, he's never as polemical or as dismissive or whatever. I don't think Deleuze, I think he takes Hegel very seriously. Um, whether or not he provides a corrective to him, that that's up for debate, and it doesn't really matter. He tries to show a different manner of thinking ontologically as, as possible, and and even that 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 I think that alone um, you know means means to lose worth is worth reading. But in the same breath, you can't you can't just you can't you can't be against Hegel. That's how he wins, right? You have to. <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, you have to have like an indifferent curiosity and an openness too. I mean, when I read Hegel, I'm, I'm always trying to like 
be as charitable as possible. Mm-hmm. And because I know where I come, and it's, I, I do this with like Derrida, for example. Um, a lot of times when I read Derrida, if I, you know, when I, when I had to uh, for school, but even today, you know, if I were to read Derrida, I know I have to have a certain vigilance against my own like predilections. You know what yeah. I mean? And it reminds me of what Schopenhauer said about art. And he gets it from Kant, because Kant would have said it first, but like the beautiful isn't what I think is beautiful, right? It's not, taste isn't about like my little thingies that I like, you know, I mean, I like red yeah. and blue and green and I hate black and orange, whatever the fuck. It, 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 can't, it can't be contaminated with my own pathological proclivities. It's, it's, it's supposed to have a more universal movement. Now we can like call it a question or whatever. And, and certain like Deleuze and his little cool little comp book, you know, he, he, he works with that, but, but even the comp book, I mean, he says himself, even the comp book, you know, he sees Kant provisionally as an enemy, but if you look at the way he approaches him, there is this kind of Spinozistic affirmationist, even with Kant and Hegel, um, we're going to find the joy of thinking, the fourth, the violence of thinking that sort of affects us. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I contrast that with how someone like Badu can be very, and it's part of his militancy, I get it, but he can be very uh, polemical to a point where it is, where, where it is crafting these red herrings and these, or sorry, or really straw men. He's really making straw men and, and lighting them on fire in this spectacular way. And the fireworks are beautiful, but, but the, but it doesn't gel with my, like, I want everybody to get along, man. I want us all to be <laughs> friends, right? Like I want us to like all be able to cohabit this like way yeah. form of thinking instead of right. saying like, no, to look bad because, you know, because calculus, not algebra, or whatever. You know, like it, it gets, <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's, what's it called? I mean, Freud talked about it. It's, but I think Martin Luther King says it, right? It's the, God, now it's the, um, what is it? It's like the prejudice of small differences. What, ah, fuck. I did read I, Hegel, I, by the way, in his, uh, his dissertation. King? Studies. Yes. Oh, I did not know. That's so fucking. There's even a website cool. that has, that has that's the, cool. uh, the paper. Yeah. That's yeah. great. It kind of makes sense. I feel like Hegel reminds me so much of Christianity and even like Hegelians, not all, but like, I don't know. There's this sort of religious, like, I always get the I the vision in my head of like a scribe <laughs> type, you know what I mean? Just that like generic. Yeah, there's I, well, go there's ahead. A book, there's a book that came out that talks about um, uh, Hegel and colonialism. I can't remember the name. Oh, okay, okay. Real bad, but there's but there's definitely a, a, a discourse there um, in terms of Hegel and his his identity identity yeah. within uh, Christianity. And how yeah. that works beyond um, the Eurocentric framework, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that discourse is is definitely out there. Well, there, there there does seem to be a certain kernel of Hegelianism in the um, nonviolent resistance, right? Yeah. That there's something powerful in not, insofar as authority has to reveal its naked essence externalize yeah. itself and use a, a, in the form of violence um in the form of direct violence this this sort of transcendental indifference or this 
you know, active resistance yet not through the destructiveness of, of violence holds up that mirror to the, to the state apparatus and, and, and thereby shows authority to be naked in its essence, right? It is the emperor wears no clothes. Um, and that's precisely, I mean, that's precisely where Zizek might go with like, you know, the left totalitarian or the left type of dictatorship, whatever that might be, would, um, would, would, would use its power or frame its power in a different way and get a different image back than a, a right, uh, than the traditional, you know, if we're going to use the binary, he, yeah. he, he likes to tell the story about the, the father, <laughs> the father, um, you know, the, the left father saying to the son, like, we're going to see grandma today. And, and yeah. like, oh, I don't want to. And it's all about this. Well, if you don't go, she'll be very sad and using this kind of passive aggressive type yeah. of, of coercion. Whereas the right, obviously the right uh, leaning father or the conservative father, whatever you want to call it is it's because I said so because, mm-hmm. because, because it's my power. You are my subjects right. and, and there's no justification that there, that is, that is necessity. Right. Um, it's not contingent upon your guilt and shame and et cetera. The law so, is the law. Right. I am that I am. So, so yeah, hold in uh, this, my own anecdote, you know, my dad was growing up, my sister's four years older than me and my dad would raise his voice to get Laura, my sister to do stuff. It was never, there was never any physical violence, but Laura always, it always compelled her. That moved her <laughs> with me at an early age, by the age of two or three, I would, when he would raise his voice to get me to do something, I always saw it as an empty threat, like intuitively. And so I would laugh at him. Mm-hmm. And, and so he even tells, he, he used to tell the story where he realized that he had to kind of broaden his parental toolbox and that that wasn't that, that approach that a direct approach wasn't going to work because I held up that mirror to him. If authority has to say, uh, I am authority then, or it has yeah. to like externalize itself, then it's already undermining itself. Uh, and that's precisely where I think the Hegelian moment in um, this nonviolent resistance um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate with that type of relationship that that has to be, you know, the antipode to such a, such a powerful force because um, you have to leave yourself open and vulnerable to, you know, so much stuff and as we saw, you know, a lot did happen. A lot of lives were lost. So, right. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, I, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just quickly there. That that brings us back to the Christian side of Hegel and King, because there is something in like the logic of Jesus' suffering and being persecuted that mm. that that it too is this, and you see this also in the Old Testament with the Israelites insofar as they suffer these trials and tribulation, that, that shows that God is, God is with them and God cares for them and they're on the right side of history, whatever. So it's the same with, you know, somewhat, to some extent, the same with Jesus and his radical passivity, which is why I think today we still have someone like, um, oh, son of a bitch. He's the revolutionary Christian. Um, he, oh God, he, he taught at Princeton, Stanford. He still does probably. Um, 
Yes, thank you, Jesus. My brain. I, hey, we're all getting old, man. No, nah, no. Well, well, we and we've been talking for a while. We've been jumping around, but yeah, I mean, there's something like with Cornell West and and uh, he he because um, I think he was on Bill Barr, you know, years back, and Barr was talking about his atheism and kind of trying to like lump West in with him. And West was like, nah, brother, I'm a revolutionary Christian. I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's something, um, there's something to that aspect of, of, of things. And so, yeah, it's, and I think that's also why the right, especially today always wants to claim that victim status because they know intuitively that, um, those those who are oppressed, those who are truly like uh, victims in this general systemic way, they fall under Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount. I mean, they're going to inherit the earth, or or one of those things, right? Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, and there's something. Um, I think they instinctively know that, and so they, you know, they they want to both wield power in this perverse, obscene way, and yet claim at the same time to be the the object uh, against which that power is wielded or you know or the true powers because then it gets all yeah it, it can it can get you know the jews run the world and all that shit or whatever uh or the right. whites the real oppressed race and all that stuff that, that just that needing to be on the cross rather than actually suffer um because for them they see they see equality as as actually suffering a loss yeah so and it's sad but that's but that's i mean that's where and then you have you just out and out racists who are like no i'm just fucking i hate i hate them because they're different but you know the the sort of quiet um latent racism that can affect that can affect all of us i'm not trying to say like we're the good woke liberals uh that kind of you know that kind of those kinds of prejudices i do see that in a lot of that 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 predominant discourse of either centrist or far right, where and it's and it's more or less articulated, where it is, it is this kind of grievance of others becoming more equal somehow brings them down a notch. They don't because they're not thinking of it in the right way. They see themselves yeah. on this on this privileged pedestal, and so when others when when the pedestals are, are leveled out. Um, yeah, more that 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 to them is perceived as a loss when it's really just the gain and at least potentially the respect of civil rights in a ju- juridical sense, in a uh, in a police sense, right? And all the, yeah. I mean, even in even in even in our everyday like the relations that um, you know the and the vigilance, the hyper vigilance we have towards the other and the neighbor and yeah. the confusion. And and the and the and the sort of fear-based part of our brain that makes us forget, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, treat the other as a neighbor, treat them as potentially a guest, and wanting to say certain spaces are not, certain spaces at certain times, are not allowable for certain bodies, right? Yeah. Um, and then they're seen as an enemy, as a threat, and so even that kind of, that's still stuff we have to be vigilant about and um and we can easily fall into it because we have that fighter we I mean, we have that adrenaline 
side, but we also have that fear side. The amygdala can can be a powerful fucking force, right? It can be a powerful drug. And, and if we don't... Subjective black hole. Yeah, the subjective black hole of... Uh, and it can... And we, all, and we all have the potential to kill. Um, doesn't have to set out to be intended, right? We have this animalistic thing uh, inside of us, that, 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 that drive. Um, and so I think part of what... I hope that part of what the tiniest drop in the ocean of thinking and just putting our, the little bit of our waves together and sending out our vibes in the universe, getting all like uh, spiritual on you guys. But I, if we can have, if we can, we can send out these good vibes and these good threads. There's no, there's no, the, there's no calculating the consequences of, of those, um, just of our efforts here of the process we're doing. We're sort of, if we just, put things in circulation, you know, with a, you, you never know, you never know what, what sort of person might just latch on and, and it sends them on a positive line of flight uh, or it helps them. Cause it's, it's never just any one thing. It's never just Deleuze, just Hegel or any one right. book or any one sentence uh, or any one podcast episode. But if we can sort of just give back to that and, and promote doing this kind of thing and, let others know that they're not alone and that we're, we're also going out on our little nomadic wanderings and, uh, and it's okay to be itinerant sometimes and circle back, but it's, but really the, the point's just to, just to put, put something out there, put yourself out there and, uh, with love and understanding or at least that potential. And, uh, hopefully, you know, you may not know the effects of it and it's not about any sort of exchange. It's really just about doing it, because it's because it's right and because it's you know yeah it makes us feel good on the inside but there's something about something about the the pure productivity of thinking that has to be applauded oh yeah oh yeah and, and it's crazy what what you were saying earlier about um well this is going like way 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 back but um we were talking about the openness of schizoanalysis to yeah uh you know, different subjects and different formations of subjects. You know, it just keeps reminding me of this lost moment, you know, between Deleuze and Guattari and Lacan. Because, you know, I was, past couple of days, I've been going through the Simpon seminar, mm -hmm. the seminar 23. And, you know, I'm still working my way through it and I don't totally understand it. But the bits that I'm getting is that you know, when you see Lacan going through all of these not formations, mm -hmm. um, you know, and all the um, the different, yeah, some of these diagrams, so you want to talk about diagrammatics, there's some crazy non-diagrammatics awesome. in this seminar. But I think, you know, part of what he's leading to is that this synthone element um, is part of the subject, so you can't necessarily, it's not something that you can, that is meant to, to be diagnosed per se. So you, it's the subject learning how to work with this part of your subject, subjectivity, and then uh, going through the analysis that way, as opposed to what we were talking about earlier, edibilizing. Yes. So the symptom 
is a way of moving beyond the Oedipus, um, the Oedipus complex and moving into the space of the subject's own um, uniqueness and heterogeneity within a world of subjects. So, yeah, it just, you know, it makes me think of all of the conversations that could have happened uh, that just, you know, did for whatever. And it's also interesting that, you know, Guattari in uh, the anti-Edipus papers calls Lacan a despotic signifier. <laughs> so that's interesting, sort of, interesting. Yeah, the sort of authoritarian figure that, you know, everybody latches around. And it's true, you know, um, because of his own um, personality quirks or... Very much like Freud, right? Yeah. Very just much. Like that. Just like that. So, you know, they're sim symptom elements. Um, everybody else tends to sort of mimic that, you know, even down to the speech because of the way he elaborates things. It's never clear and direct like Freud was. Um, so when you hear Lacanians speak about Lacan and things that he's saying, you know, they're always sort of repeating the same, not always, but uh, the same hiccups. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of thing. You see that so, with Theridians too. You see what, we, like, at a oh, certain God. point, if you, if you, now the best Theridians don't do this, and you wouldn't even call them Theridians to a certain extent, but like, I remember in grad school that moment where I had to read a bunch of Derrida back to back. And my writing started to change, and I had to like, whoa, I had to like step back and mm -hmm. and, and and try not to mimic uh, the movements. And that can be difficult for any thinker, but with the highly stylization of of Lacan and Derrida, those are the two that come to mind. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari are obviously not exempt from this, um, yeah. but I, I see with Guattari uh, what I would call more of a heretical figure than a despotic figure. I see yeah. Guattari wanting to like say, go ahead, proliferate the different analyses. There is no one true path. Um, and therefore there is no one true like leader or father of psychoanalysis. You know, even if Freud historically, you know, in the broad sense can be pointed to as the father. It's precisely that all the baggage that comes with that, that not only like, you know, in a certain way, it's productive because, like with Freud, you can kind of see the splinterings off of Freud with, you know, Jung and Frenzy and Rank and whatever. You can see these. Yeah. We we can see a kind of proliferation, but it's through. It has to like confront the master, right? It has to confront the. It has to right. try to kill the the father of the primordial horde. And I just don't think Watchery participates in that same type of dissemination. You know, I, I, I see him, and that's what I meant by heresy, is like instead of a schism off from Freud to reconstitute the, the new true path, um, you know, it's, it's not about a competition with the father. So it's, it's not about trying to do Lacan or outdo Lacan or redo yeah. Lacan even. But, to, but, but what, you know, given Lacan and given all that he has investigated, you know, how can we go with Lacan to take this journey elsewhere? doesn't have to always just continue Lacan. It, it, I mean, it is kind of like a Borromean nodding. Uh, we have to, we have to allow ourselves to 
go off the beaten path or whatever metaphor you want to use. And, and, but also be serious about what the original path was. So that's the tightrope is always, you know, um, being sensitive to the movement of the text, whether it be Lacan or Derrida, which is always difficult. And yet keep ourselves open to not, not beginning to, it's almost like, um, what's it called? It's almost like a Stockholm syndrome of thought, you know, where, where we're being, we're, we're allowing ourselves to open ourselves up to this other, other text, other mind, other formation discourse. And, and therefore, like in, in Levinas's understanding of it, we, we allow ourselves to be taken hostage to varying degrees by the text or by Lacan, the great thinker. And, and so at a certain point, we start to like assent and agree, right? We just sort of like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, of course. It, of course it'd be that. And our brain just kind of, because it's, because we're mapping out these conceptual things. And so there's a sort of, you know, mental, uh, since we're trying to understand, we're also trying to make it make sense and we're trying to give it a charitableness. Uh, so that we have to allow ourselves to, um, have light feet, right? And and not, and I think that I think that's precisely why Guattari had to had to break from Lacan. Um, they just they just weren't going to be doing the same things, and that's that's good. It's not a bad thing. It's a it's yeah. a very good thing uh, because I'm sure Lacan gave Guattari a certain rigor, without which we wouldn't have like this critique of semiology, this critique of linguistics from uh, from Guattari. I don't really think you get pushed to that, um, to that level without, um, some of the moves, some of the conceptual moves, uh, Lacan makes. So, um, so yeah, it's a difference, you know, that despotic signifier, is that what it was? Mm -hmm. Despotic signifier, not despotic figure. Yeah. It can be, yeah. it can be, uh, it can be productive and it all depends on, um, if we are going to allow ourselves to put on the yoke of the despot of Oedipus, right? Or if we can find these ways out from that or ways from, uh, you know, I mean, I try to think of it as Laura Well says, like, how can, how can a generic science take philosophy as its object without destroying it in the process or transforming it? Um, and there's something about when we read someone like, Lacan or Freud or even Deleuze and Guattari, we have to be sensitive to um, to a certain ability to not destroy or transform it in itself, but potentially for itself, you know, in, in another discourse. Um, and this is this is why there has to be these rules where we we kind of protect the signifying identities of you know uh, any any names or conceptual terminology, but then inscribe within them their own uh, non-philosophical alphabung, if you want to just use that term, right? Um, their own cancellation, uh, which isn't canceling their identity or themselves as philosophy, just their, just their sufficiency to, you know, to legitimize themselves by the very fact that they are a linguistic constellation. So... Yeah, I need to. I need to. <laughs> I need to get to my Laura file. We will. We'll get to that. I think that's probably a good place to 
yeah. to, 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 to stop. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Coop? We could even yeah. talk about, uh, we'll just come back to this chapter. Yeah, we'll just come back to chapter seven once DC is okay. ready to roll. Yeah, that sounds good. It's um, Well, guys, it has been a lot of fun always. It's been um, a blast. It's been an enlightening, and we got to we got to talk about a lot of cool shit. So uh, I appreciate oh, yeah. I appreciate both of you. Yeah, anytime, my friend. Anytime. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll 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 do our little group chat, and um, and you know, DC will. He's always on a different, I guess, temporality than the three of us. So he'll he'll mm-hmm. weave himself back yeah, in. Yeah, we'll, and um, we'll get him in. And yeah, I know that you don't have to edit out any fire uh, so that's gonna be so uh thanks we will we'll thank the tech it was the it was the machinic phylum we were, they were looking out for us right, right. Looking, oh my god exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. that refrain it will be missing from this yeah episode. sadly <laughs> all right gentlemen Ooh. all right it was thanks good. again all right i'll talk yes. to you guys i'll talk to you guys online sounds good sounds Cheers. good i'll talk to you guys later bye, bye.